good evening ladies and gentlemen and our listeners all across the world once again start a new episode of quote unquote with kk i have some exciting announcements to make one i would like to invite our listeners from iheart radio tune in as well as awaz in india so welcome to our show and i'm sure you will find our podcast interesting and motivating there is another announcement i would like to make our website kapilkhandelwal.com is live the website for more details about our upcoming podcasts and i would urge you all make of the other material that is available on the website which is around healthcare investing economics so please do make sure that you utilize the resources available on the website that you have let's move on to our current guest i have mr manu nair who is vice chair of mayo clinic all the way from rochester city and he comes with a very exciting background and experience of having worked both on the west hemisphere of of the of the world as well as connecting the east which is our side of the world on healthcare and life sciences manu has worked not just at mayo clinic prior to that manu worked with oklahoma medical research foundation where he has been working on various strategic industry collaborations managing innovation fund and he has taken several innovative companies in the healthcare and life sciences space to ipo as well closer home manu has also advised the department of biotechnology ministry of science and technology on innovation and commercialization he has been an advisor to the rajiv gandhi institute although manu and we did not cross path i was involved with the department of biotechnology years ago in setting up the ignition grant policy but our paths crossed recently and i'm really excited to have manu talk about our today's topic ending ending endemic the future of healthcare over to you manu before i let you take the podium i just like to make a few issues and the context of our talk today while around the world you know the current covid cases are on the decline however in india we are seeing new peaks every day and that's a part of a worry secondly over the last few weeks there have been a few concerning news items that have come around which obviously concerns not just us all but the government as well as healthcare industry and overall the people of the world one obviously is this whole damning news that has come that this whole corona virus has been <laughs> manufactured out of wuhan that's very concerning uh, just a week back we had a news and a statement by one of india's leading vaccine manufacturer the serum institute mentioning that for them to ramp up and produce and cover a billion people it would mean that they would take three more years and the whole coverage would be by 2024 and lastly we had an adverse event on one of the very promising vaccine from astrazeneca which had an had an impact on their stock prices as well earlier this year as we normally do we published our healthcare life sciences investment heat map for india and we revised it half yearly covid however the investment and the whole sentiment 
seems to be muted and we do see some amount of correction sometime early November or towards the later part of end of December. Concerns for everyone, not just the people of the world, but the investors, the people who deliver healthcare, the government. And I would love to have Manu comment on some of these issues apart from really telling us that is this now moving from a pandemic phase to an endemic phase? How are we going to now transform healthcare and how are the business models going to change and what's the future of healthcare? Over to you, Manu. Thank you, uh, uh, KK. Appreciate your time. Uh, you know, uh, thanks for uh, that kind introduction and appreciate you uh, inviting me to this podcast the cast today. You bring up a very uh, a list of interesting questions, to be uh, honest with you, because the uh, spread, of course, it is worrisome. We have now seen that the um, uh, the virus basically got into control in some parts of the uh, the world. For example, in India, it was in an early stage because there was early intervention on the part of the government. And but the biggest problem is that this particular disease is so what I call people carry this disease or transmitted when they do not have the symptoms, unlike many other, you know, diseases, and, and it spreads so fast. The biggest problem that countries are having is the uh, is the long sustenance of this of disease in the uh, environment of or, or in the population. I do not know if we can completely believe the numbers that are coming out of China. But having said that, China seems to basically have it under the best control than many other countries because China can do that, because they can shut out a place and, and you know, uh, and they can actually be very uh, authoritarian in implementing things, which doesn't happen a lot in democratic countries. And, you know, uh, India, uh, United States are all no exceptions. And we are also seeing that the uh, the coronavirus basically went down in in Europe, and now there is actually it is coming back. I think the biggest issue is complacency, because the biggest issue that happens is that we are all human beings. What happens is when we see that the numbers are going down, and then there is a sense of being complacent with the reality of that moment, and then not take the necessary precautions, not basically uh, practicing the hygiene that is required, washing hands or wearing masks. This is not be an easy haul. This is going to be a long-term process. If you can read all the uh, the, the articles and numbers. We are basically talking about not having a normalcy until the end of next year. We will have to learn to live with this. And we will have to basically be careful about this. And what happens, I guess, is people going out to the bars when things get better and then congregate and then, you know, and spread this without the uh, the, the appropriate protection. So I think complacency is an important factor of this, in my personal opinion. This is not a Mayo Clinic opinion, you know, but what I'm trying to say is that with the realities that we see and that, that, that attitude needs to change. Number two, you asked me an important question about whether this would be a, this is actually a Wuhan manufactured virus or to be honest with you i don't have the answer for that or you know uh, but having said that the united states government has actually come out and publicly stated that there has been uh, information about that this may be actually an accident of some sort or whatever but we do and china is basically lying that so uh, we do not have information to claim that this is a uh, this is somehow a virus that was actually that escaped uh, the, the the laboratories of china but 
I wouldn't rule out anything because I don't have enough facts. <laughs> so that is my fact to, uh, to, to say. But, you know, we will probably know more in the future is what I'm hoping for. Number three, you brought up an important question about manufacturing. It is an extremely important question. And this is why a lot of people ask me the question, Manu, why is that United States government and many other governments are just pumping like billions of dollars into manufacturing of these virus vaccines even before the vaccines are approved? And we have to think about this. A vaccine approval process usually takes 10 years. We are trying to basically constrict that into a a time span of, you know, uh, two years or a year. And when you do that, one of the most important things that happen is manufacturing, because if you have a vaccine approved in two years, and if you want to basically have vaccine made available to people, you can't afford to wait for two more years for enough vaccines to be produced. That's why most countries have basically said, we are going to make this investment of, you know, yeah, we might actually, it's like a hedge fund. We are basically putting money into different vaccine manufacturing, the, the ones that we think are promising. And maybe only two of them or maybe one of them succeed, but we would have actually the manufacturing for that worked out by the time that the approval comes. So, uh, and having said that, you know, uh, we actually do have logistical issues because one of the world's biggest manufacturing centers for vaccines is India. And India actually has now, I would rather say Indian companies are overwhelmed. Other companies have actually, other countries have probably not invested enough in manufacturing, which we actually have seen over the years move to other markets like China, India, places like that. And we now have an economic structure where the Western world is seen more as consumers and high-tech economies, and the manufacturing has moved to other parts of the country, and I would rather call it silo. Now, this is going to change, and I am, I'm seeing that on the ground in the United States that there is actually, the pandemic actually has, has shown the vulnerabilities of the uh, country with regards to essential manufacturing drugs, that there is a huge focus irrespective of parties who are basically in power, to bring essential drug manufacturing back home as a national security issue. So it doesn't matter whether it is actually going to be that we are going to have enough a number of vaccines produced or not. Countries will start thinking about investing in necessary infrastructure of manufacturing of drugs. There is no question about that. Now, Serum Institute, I didn't I, until you told me this, I didn't know that that they are having challenges with manufacturing you know, enough quantities. I'm not surprised, and that is also one of the reasons why more than one vaccine would be important because we actually cannot just bet on one horse and not have enough mileage out of that particular horse. And we probably need multiple number of vaccines and multiple you know, manufacturing sources to meet the demand. And I'm hoping that there'll be more, like Pfizer is having good data coming out is what I hear. Moderna has a different kind of a vaccine approach with an RNA virus. And even Mayo Clinic is working on a vaccine approach, which is a single cycle, you know, adenoviral vector, which is versus the AstraZeneca approach is actually a non-replicating adenoviral vector. And we are hoping that we will be able to produce significant more robust response at a lower dosage. That's what we're hoping. So uh, 
So there are several kinds of vaccines just come in and we will need those because we will we have got billions of people to cover. And I hope that we that'll be an important thing. AstraZeneca's failure, you know, it has been temporary. As you know, what happened is uh, what I read in the in, in the articles is that there was actually a adverse event that involves some sort of a transverse myelitis, which is basically inflammation of their, uh, you know, uh, a spinal myelin sheath. And but it, it, it AstraZeneca deemed that to be a an event to be monitored because and and not something that was was actually something that should stop the trial. And they have actually now reinitiated. Their, they've announced that they're going to go back and reinitiate the trial, which is promising news and unfortunate to see that. There was actually there was an adverse event, but they they were also thinking whether that person had an underlying condition that actually triggered that kind of and and so uh, I think it is moving forward and there will basically be much more data coming out pretty soon. So I think comes and, and this is all promising from a market perspective because we have to one of the things that that is very much tied to complacency is the desire of people to basically uh, desire of people to get back to normal and also one of the most important things that you can't shut down the whole world forever if we had all addressed this in a in a manner that was very aggressive all the countries that addressed it in a manner that was very aggressive to get it under control in a short span of time it would have been fine but unfortunately that's not the world that we live in so markets were are suffering from what I call the uncertainty associated with when this is to end. But having said that, we have to basically look at the positives of the market. I was looking at in uh, when this is actually the, the the capitalist world is that when we actually have a disaster at one end, there might be an opportunity at the other end, or you know basically repivot our you know focuses into more effort. Like in the healthcare that you're talking, traditional models of healthcare has been disrupted. And if you look at, for example, you know, telehealth, right? Telehealth was actually not, it has always been there, but it was, it didn't take off. We all like to go to a doctor's office, right? And see the doctor. And even if it is not necessary to see the doctor in person, we like to see the, our doctor that makes us feel like you are basically being treated. Now, COVID has forced us to adopt telehealth in a significantly better manner. Now the question will be, are, is telehealth to be the most important thing for, or, or is it going to be suitable for every kind of you know, treatment? Maybe not, but it will basically a significant portion of healthcare. And I'm telling this from the Mayo Clinic experience, because Mayo Clinic has, is always at the forefront. I think, you know, I always say Mayo Clinic thinks five years in advance. And they, the Mayo Clinic actually created a platform called Connected Care, which is basically a telehealth, digital health, virtual care platform and care system for our patients many years ago. By the time we had basically worked out the kinks and the technical glitches and, and we had put a huge team and physicians associated with that, the adoption was probably less than a thousand patients a, you know, you know, at one point of time. When the uh, pandemic hit, we were at a point where we could scale it up quickly, and it went like you know, you know, over many, many, many times, like twenty thousand and odd patients on the telehealth platform because they couldn't come to the physician's office. Now it has probably reduced in numbers now that the normalcy in physician practice is coming back. Having said that, it is not where it started. It is significantly much more than the adoption has been seen much more. So I would say that disruption in in uh, in healthcare market 
is actually an opportunity. And if you look at Livongo, there is a company called Livongo that just got acquired by Teledoc, which is a huge telehealth uh, company for $18.5 billion. And they actually, uh, Livongo is actually in a digital health chronic patient management business. And who would have thought about this eight months ago? Because Livongo basically gave an opportunity for Teledoc to integrate into chronic care. So uh, markets will adapt. And I would basically say that there are new opportunities out there from a market perspective. And it is well spoken just by looking at the investment numbers, because I was reading an article by Bruce Booth of Atlas about the uh, the numbers of venture capital investment. And the biotech biopharma investment in Q2 was close to uh, $6.4 billion, which is the highest ever from uh, uh, in, a, in a quarter from, what, 2010 or so? And the total venture capital investment has been in, in, in this, until this part of the year is around 24 billion and the year is not over, which is the highest ever from 2010. So, uh, the, the confidence in, in the markets is not gone. I would say the underlying principles of the economy are sound. We have a glitch, but adapting. And I think we will see that. Now, one last question I would say is that, is that going to trickle down to every segment of economy, every segment of market? For example, is it actually going to be equally applicable to every market? Maybe not. But that is something that we will have to think about because you don't want to have an inequity in the market that actually disturbs the sound platform market itself. Then you don't have a what I call the, the, the sound principles of the market in place to maintain a long-term sustained recovery. So that is something that we will have to think about, but that's up to the policymakers to think. So uh, uh, that's that's what I'm, I'm, I'm actually, uh, uh, that's my two cents. <laughs> Excellent opening comments, Manu. Brings up a, a very important question. It's about, which you briefly touched upon, investment in tropic health, prevention, preparedness for future pandemics, and ensuring that uh, mitigation of health and social inequalities, which are fairly socio-economic driven. How do you think the future of healthcare is going to address these? So uh, it's a very interesting question because I, I, you may have seen this. There was a TED talk by you know Bill Gates a few years ago. Correct. And uh, you know it was right after the Ebola crisis in Liberia, and he was basically talking about how that did not spread because there was a rapid response by the whole world at that point of time to basically contain the Ebola crisis in in, in Liberia. And uh, you know what he said is that there are two things that stand out in that talk for me. One is that of course Ebola was actually very different than this disease because by the time somebody became contagious, he was actually so sick that they couldn't get out of bed that it didn't spread that fast. And so, but the COVID-19 is not like that and it spreads faster and people without symptoms carry it complicates a lot. Of it. But one of the things that he mentioned is that our systems about managing infectious diseases is actually very reactive. It is not very, and and he, and I, and I would basically, can, you know, ask this question in a different way. Will the, will any country that actually has a concern about its defense and territory respond like this? Will we basically have a reactive mentality borders in our military? Yeah, you know, there was a war going to happen. Yeah, you know, uh, let's actually now build an army. No, that doesn't work like that, right? It actually, uh, everybody is is in in a place with military and, and a strength to basically use it as a deterrence and respond rapidly with a plan when there is a need. That is not there in these kinds of, this is, 
for a lack of better term, this is a biological warfare, even if it is not, you know, uh, initiated by human beings, you know, voluntarily. It is a situation of a biological a disease catastrophe, and, a, and, and we are in a state of war against COVID. And the problem is that there has not been a unified command and a plan in, in, in individual countries, as well as places. For example, WHO has been pretty much in effect in predicting this and managing this, which should have been an organization that did that should have managed this on a global scale. It has shown the vulnerabilities that WHO has. And uh, agree or not agree with uh, President Trump, there are certain points that actually that come out of the administration that says that, yes, you know, there has been there has not been effective management of this disease and uh, from an international perspective of WHO. Now, then from a countrywide perspective, nobody has seen this. So they don't know how to react, that, you know, and they are basically acting to the, uh, the way that the disease behaved a week ago. For example, oh. Do you think that the disease is actually spreading because it is uh, it is because uh, people who actually have the disease should wear masks? Okay, others do not need. Now a week later we understand that put on the mask by both parties is actually going to be more beneficial. Oh, now you need to put on the mask. That is actually not not a what I call most coherent and effective advice and planning associated with that. If we are dealing with a, a situation where if there is enemy bombing that is happening in a country, you know, would you say, okay, we might actually want to take the risk and go out and check? No, we might actually, we should take the most a precaution to avoid a catastrophe and people should all basically be trained and coached and prepared to take the best prevention system. So that is lacking and that is something that we should basically talk from a public health and disease prevention perspective and basically have that kind of an education or from a grassroots level and and spend each country should basically spend money and effort towards prevention and vaccination is an extreme component and coming back to vaccines if you actually uh, you know look back uh, six months ago or eight months ago vaccine business was actually not the profitable business in the biopharma industry probably correct. that there were very billion dollar opportunity correct and the thing is that the vaccine <laughs> business was basically consolidated among some big players that people and there was not significant investment in vaccine development or anything like that. Now, people will ask me the question, how can you build a vaccine for a disease that doesn't exist? Would we be in the same place? It would we not have been in the same place even if there was investment in vaccines? I say that perspective. I'm not a scientist. I'm an intellectual property. Lawyer. But having said that, I understand the necessity to build chassis. You can basically, you can think about, you know, looking at, this like a car manufacturer. You can build chassis of cars with different structures. Now, if you have that, you can put any model from a T20 to a uh, to an a what do you call Tesla on those chassis platforms. If you actually have investments in vaccine research, where you have platforms that can actually be taken that are proven to be safe and that can actually be taken and you can plug in an antigen that actually is a new antigen, a new disease, and then basically test that for vaccine purposes, your time to market for this becomes significantly less. Why is AstraZeneca manufacturing and why is AstraZeneca 
a clinical trial or Moderna clinical trial taking time. AstraZeneca using, is using the adenoviral vector platform. The platform itself has not been proven. And you now have a higher threshold of proving the platform and basically safety, efficacy, and everything else. Moderna is using an RNA-based vaccine, not a platform that has ever been proven. No vaccines have been built on it. So you actually have best in technologies that I call plug and play. You actually take a you know, platform, insert a new antigen, at least you know the chassis is strong and basically withstand that. So these are kinds of things that we can actually do and that would reduce the timeline. But nobody has invested time and effort over the years in that. That's one of the things that Bill Gates was talking about, that it's about basically having a vision of what the next pandemic is. And, and no doubt we are living in a pandemic world because 30 years ago, travel between countries was not something that we basically uh, envisioned the way that it happens right now. I will tell you a very simple example. I grew up in India, right? And, you know, when I was actually in high school or college, you know, there was probably one person in my town who has gone abroad or made a, you know, a trip to the United States or maybe one or two. Now, everybody goes on business, right? You know, so uh, world travel has become very common. Now that creates, or I would rather say traveling has become endemic. And when it actually happens, you are not living in silos and you actually have more opportunities to catch diseases and spread diseases from the places where you are and places where you are, you are traveling. So uh, you are going to see more pandemics, like a four or five year cycle yeah. of these things. And if we don't plan for this and we basically uh, go back to sleep after this thing is over, we have not learned anything, which is unfortunately what happened from the Ebola situation because it didn't go as far as it basically, uh, like like the uh, the coronavirus situation, imagine, it, you know, take for a moment and think if it was Ebola instead of corona in this situation, we would have been in a completely horrible, disastrous situation because it's not going to be, what, 1% death. It is actually going to be like a, what I call Armageddon you're looking at. And uh, so we can't basically just, just sleep on. We need to invest in research, in vaccine research, in the therapeutic research, and in diagnostic, because you basically have to have the testing systems, which we all saw was lacking. And interestingly, uh, you and I talked about this, KK, that, you know, when the, the, the disease was actually initially announced, Testing took like 48 hours using traditional PCR methods. Like three weeks ago, Abbott came out with a with a kit that actually can test this in 15 minutes on point of care. And you're talking about something developed as a reactive you know, response in less than five months, right? right? So if you basically want to do these kinds of things in classes of viruses that you can detect in a point of care and you base, and, and you invest in that research, right? as a public-private partnership, then you actually will not be able to see, you, you will not have this kind of what I call, oh, what do I do now kind of question pair. And it is important. Excellent. As I added on a question that emerges in this war between man and virus is you touched upon the diagnostics, you touched upon the research, you touched upon the investment into platform. How is the new models of care going to happen? Is it going to be as we have learned now, isolation, and do you think there would be new models of dormitory or different 
type of care models that will emerge uh, once this sort of a war you know starts off again some we see these uh, pandemics happening every four years do you think that uh, it's time that we also reimagine this whole uh, war between man and virus into a different care model and different care infrastructure as well you know i will i'll just basically make it make your argument a little bit more simple right the thing is that it's not just about man and virus is the healthcare market to fundamentally change because of situations it doesn't have to be about the virus because of situations that you basically cannot anticipate can't go to a doctor or a hospital let that be we had a flood right in and basic you we can't travel from one end to another and you need, need to get treatment is it going to change yes there are going and digital health virtual care platform so America has got an initiative called virtual care platform and so i say i'll basically back up a little bit and say that mayo clinic has a a huge initiative called plat mayo clinic plat the idea is mayo clinic's healthcare knowledge information and knowledge about the necessities of next to 20 years or 30 years of uh, uh, healthcare needs basic to be converted into in what i call offerings that can actually be beneficial to patients and one of the key components of that is externalizing not keeping it to mayo clinic and you don't have to come to mayo clinic to get that treatment you basically can externalize it through partners that and i'll give you a couple of examples so the un, under that platform business couple of most important focuses are what we called uh, cdap which is basic the uh, clinical a data analytics plan which is mayo clinic has now come up with uh, and has taken all the patient data and and basically completely uh, de-identified it and to maintain mayo clinic's data integrity and patient confidence we are not letting that data go outside mayo clinic we basically it will sit safe in our own uh, environment but we are partnered with a company called influence that is actually a, and and we have invested in them that company is basically using artificial intelligence and data analytics mining to use at and access that data in the periphery without taking it out of the mayo clinic environment and use that to basically create better drugs so you know you and i even though we we are coming i'll say we are both indians we basically and even if we are both indians our genetic makeup are different and we respond probably to different ways to different drugs so personalized medicine how in and finding the population that actually in which the uh, the drugs would work is extremely important and identifying that drug and the client for the drug vaccine response can you basically get the right population to to give the vaccine to treat and and is this vaccine going to work in this patient and so those kinds of data information is required for both development of uh, of biopharmaceutics as well as treatment of patients in administrators that is one so that is something that is happening now and is it going to change how to get care and treatment yes and another one is we have now launched an or we we have commercially launched a a care platform called virtual care and guess what this is actually very important because forget about dormitories you will be taken care in your own bed in your own home and it is called acute care from home model which is we are partnered with a company called medically home which is basically a company that you know the whole idea is 
somebody comes to Mayo Clinic, gets treated for an acute event like a surgery or something like, or is actually having an acute disease condition, like a kidney disease condition, is the patient of Mayo Clinic has been treated. Now, instead of having to come to Mayo Clinic and stay at Mayo Clinic for long periods of time after an acute surgery or to manage this acute condition for infusions or whatever, your own home becomes your hospital. Now, how do you do that? Medically Home is a company that integrates all of the, the patient's bed, his, the, all the devices that are basically at our, the IOTs or Internet of Things are integrated. They all basically are managed through this company. There are vendors who would come and basically take care of that patient on a need basis. A nurse would come and basically, like uh, olden days, nurses coming home and giving injections or whatever, taking right. care of that. And then at the same time, Mayo Clinic actually has a command center that monitors that patient at real time. And if the patient wants to basically get access to the doctor, presses a button on an iPad called Mayo One Touch and gets connected to the doctor to talk as you and I are doing, gets uh, advice. So you are managing a patient complete from home. You don't have to go to the doctor's office. This is a company that Mayo has actually you know, founded, with co-founded. And basically now we have uh, multiple clients and, and you can look it up. It's called Medically Home. And, you know, many hospital systems are now used in this company in Mayo's care to manage their patients from home. So is the healthcare system going to change? In, if you can change that in an acute care setting, which is where healthcare needs are the most, it is so easy to do that in a chronic care set, right? So Correct. healthcare is going to change. And this is all for good. One of the most important things is that it reduces fundamentally the cost of the system because you are basically reducing the cost of a patient traveling, staying, and ultimately reduce the cost of uh, the expenses associated with uh, medical care. And that is the whole purpose of it. And take better care of, uh, because our motto is very simple. We put patients first. So, you know, Will and Charlie Mayo said that, you know, the needs of the patient comes first. So, uh, that is the driving force behind Mayo Clinic's, the Mayo Clinic's principle of, of being in existence. And we do it three ways. One, make sure that we put the patient in the middle of it. Number two, think about what a patient needs, not today, but 100 years from And, you know, create it through innovation. So that's, that's exactly what we do. And that is the way that I would entertain every health system, every country to think about, because this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. So that's all that I would say about it. Two comments here. One, closer home, Prime Minister on the initiative where we are going to create a nationwide healthcare data repository. A draft bill is available for the public to comment upon. And I'm very positive that we would get some sort of data available for healthcare planners and providers to, to be able to create similar infrastructure that Mayo Clinic has done to India as well. But a quick question here, Manu. I know I visited Rochester City and it's a, it's a healthcare city of its own. A couple of years back and I was meeting with your chairman and, and people uh, from the investment team. Now that you have a virtual platform, what is Mayo Clinic's plans for India? Are they going to come virtually or physically? <laughs> you know, uh, it be so let me actually say this in a different way. So we have, uh, as you know, uh, we have a very active call. Uh, see, when I 
10 years ago, it didn't exist. We actually had a, as opportunities internationally from a, what do you call, opportunistic way. Who are we playing with? And, and you know, is it actually something? It was a one-off kind of. But we have now created a entity called Mayo Clinic International, which focuses exclusively on, exclusively on international expansion, international, international platforms, and how to basically deliver care internationally. And uh, and in that regard, we basically started a hospital in collaboration with Oxford University in London. So we have got a Mayo Clinic London now. And we also started, we went and, and basically partnered, acquired the uh, the Abu Dhabi Health System. Now there is actually the Mayo Clinic uh, Abu Dhabi in, in the Middle East. We are always looking at, you know, strategically at opportunities because we understand that we have always been a destination medical center. Because Mayo right. Clinic, people basically come to Mayo Clinic when they don't have any other place to go. That shows the kind of confidence that they have in the Mayo Clinic. They look at Mayo Clinic as the last resort that can see, which is a huge, it's a proud thing for us. But having said that, a lot of times it is not a great thing because a lot of times, by the time a patient comes to us, a patient may be beyond him. So uh, we want to make sure that not have one of the motivations, my, in my understanding, is that to help patients where they are so that we can create better outcomes. So if the, the travel is an issue, things like that. So access to patients in a broader sense is tremendous strategy. And one of the things that has happened is these two hospitals. Yes, Mayo Clinic is looking at additional opportunities to expand into additional markets. But to be honest with you, I've not been in a part in, in those discussions to tell you where those strategies are and what it would be. But I wouldn't be surprised if Southeast Asia, India would be a big, big, big focus because Mayo used to look at that at one time. And the thing is, uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all because the thing is that what do you look at in a market like this? Highly educated, you know, and, and highly trained pool of, uh, of employees who can actually be able to do this kind of work. And guess what? As you can imagine, uh, a significant population of doctors and nurses are Indian in the United States. Mayo Clinic is not an exception. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Mayo looks at that and does that. But I haven't those discussions. But having said that, there is a very organized strategy on going global and basically impacting patients where they are to make sure that we can make a better impact on patients and not basically uh, and not less serve patients because they have to come to us so that is, uh, is actually a that's an important component in mayo's mayo's uh, vision so it's my understanding so uh, that's to just just give you a very honest answer about it. One of the things that impressed me at uh, Rochester City when I visited last time was your incubation, the acceleration center of your Mayo Clinic ventures. In India, there have been pockets. Uh, there have been uh, a few such uh, initiatives in Bangalore, Hyderabad, Pune, Delhi. I wanted to just understand, uh, you know, the type of facility that you have built and the type of ecosystem that you have built. It's unparalleled, I, I, I believe, anywhere in the world. How do you think India could probably learn from Mayo Clinic and, and build or upscale some of these facilities that are there in India? I mean, now that you know about uh, Mayo Clinic experience and, you know, you've worked with DBT, how do you think we can probably scale this some these 
initiatives up in India to be kind of world beating? So that's a, that's a very interesting question. There are three important components. One is maturity of an ecosystem. Uh, also is dependent on the maturity of the larger ecosystem, right? Rochester is a small ecosystem. Building that where there's nothing existing is easier when you are basically having a larger ecosystem of Minneapolis, which is actually be like at uh, 90 miles away. Or uh, in and and because Minneapolis, for a lot of you not know, is actually the med tech capital of uh, United States. There are over 600 right. medical device companies. Medtronic is there. Is the the biggest medical device company's headquarters is actually there. It's a huge uh, in a business uh, bay for in a medical devices. And so there is talent. There is the uh, what I call. Uh, you know, entrepreneurial talent, there is the management talent in the greater ecosystem that you can tap to basically feed into the smaller ecosystem to make it happen. Now, that is one. Number two is if you look at, I, I moved from Mayo Clinic. I used to be at Mayo 2008, 2014. I left and basically became the vice president of Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation, like what you uh, said. And I took, uh, when I was leaving, right before I was leaving, they started the initiative of this, uh, what do you call, uh, incubation facility and local economic development and new companies in Rochester. It was driven by a few aspects in my mind. One is actually that you want, if you want to attract the best talent to come to Rochester, Minnesota, the, to maintain the, the name of the number one hospital in the world, guess what? You need the best doctors and the best uh, administrators and the best IT professionals and everything else. Those folks basically when they look at uh, an environment, they have entrepreneurial aspirations. They want, and even if they don't have entrepreneurial aspirations, they want to basically have jobs for their spouses, their future for their kids, so that they don't feel like my son has to go to New York to get a job. My uh, my wife can't find the job. So uh, what happened is that Mayo recognized that and wanted to create an ecosystem and environment for People who you recruit to basically thrive and, and the population in Rochester, Minnesota, it's only 125,000 people. And, uh, and so and they don't have to travel far and want to, wanted to make that ecosystem you know, robust enough to make sure that's the case. And then when I went to Oklahoma, I had the, the Oklahoma is a 1.2 million people city, 10 times more than Rochester, Minnesota. Oklahoma City is actually that. The state of Oklahoma is actually a population-wise smaller state, but the same rules apply because Oklahoma was trying to do the exact thing because the uh, state uh, you know, sits like 300 miles north of Dallas, which is actually a huge economic hub and drags everyone to Dallas because everybody goes to Dallas to basically get a job or you know, it, it, and, and do business. And Oklahoma was trying the exact same thing because like my colleague said, I would want to play with my grandkids. I don't want to basically have them go to uh, Texas, and I don't get to see Leah only for uh, you know Thanksgiving and Christmas. So this desire of, uh, of basically having local communities thrive and Mayo being the anchor of the local community of Rochester, Minnesota, is actually what drove that decision. Now Mayo has the resources because the brand name attracts investors, entrepreneurs, and at the same time has world-class technologies to offer. So now why is that? Mayo invests approximately, has a research budget of a billion dollars, right? Mayo's own research budget is at close to a billion dollars. So uh, when you have that kind of resources available, research with high class, uh, high 
quality researchers you know, uh, discovering new things, it is not difficult to attract that. This is why I said maturity, because that maturity exists in ecosystem, right? Adjacent ecosystem in, in the ecosystem itself with regards to technologies, uh, you know, people, all of that. The building of something like in, in a Mayo Clinic or even in Oklahoma City, even in, because the OU Medical Center is there, OMRF is there, even though it is not Mayo Clinic, it is actually still have the, the ecosystem. Now, move to India, right? We basically, uh, we have not basically had that macro ecosystem. Yes, we have got money to invest. I don't know if it is enough, but we have had not the money, to, we have the money to invest. Government only seems to have come up with a strategy recent and to basically think about, oh, we are throwing money at this research, but we are not seeing anything that benefits the economy or translate into, into patients. Because if you look at it, how many drugs have come out of it, right? And, okay. you know, that's whatever drugs that may have come out didn't come out of India, it went to some other place and became like, for example, Kurdev uh, uh, was acquired by Roche. And I, uh, you know, a friend of a friend of mine is actually the CEO of Kurdev. And I know he used to be here. He basically went to Bangalore, established it, and the technology may have come out of there. But having said that, you actually, uh, you do not have a robust local uh, development of, uh, of drugs that are proprietary, not generic. And now, Companies like Zydus Catalan and Biocon are getting into that market, but all of the, they have a limitation on how much they can do with regards to internal technology develop, uh, uh, development. It, at the end of the day, like the United States, you actually have to have those technologies. A lot of them come from academia because if you look at the uh, technology growth and development in the United States and, and companies basically developing biopharmaceutical drugs, they tend to come from academia a lot, and we do not have. Them. So the most important thing is, again, having a strategy of strengthening academic research with a plan, because you do not have intellectual property and technology commercialization expertise in, in these academic centers that can actually then take those outcomes into convert into viable businesses and partner. And that's what I basically did at Gandhi Center for Biotechnology. You mentioned in the beginning, I was actually as a consultant by then director, Dr. Pillay, to establish a intellectual property office for them because there was none. And uh, we put employment agreements in place, intellectual property policies in place, and most recently took a technology from RGCB, which is a natural product-based compound for liver cancer treatment and basically partnered that with a external company in the United States that actually is a synthesized compound uh, and basically uh, and they're going to go to clinical trials for liver cancer. If that happens, it would be one of the very, if it is successful, success stories and it took me eight plus years to build that infrastructure, train the, uh, the, the, the faculty to think translationally and then basically get to a point where we can have a successful commercialization opportunity, which I presented at the uh, Indian Cancer Association meeting in February. I was in India, and I basically talked about this in my, my plenary talk. And I basically said about this, and I, I even basically showed a, uh, an, an example of the mentor sharing of revenues that motivates a lot of people. They don't really understand. That. So the maturity of the ecosystem will have to be built and for which 
you will have to probably tap into expertise outside it to say, can we build a, a technology commercialization operation that best utilizes and advises of research institutions to create the best value of technologies coming out, partner them with the pharma or, or industry and bring it out to clinic. It is going to take 20 years probably to achieve that or 30 years. But if we don't invest it, it's not basic. So the answer to your question is very simple. That investment, not just throwing money into research or money into ideas is enough. You need to have a path that we need to accomplish. Very well said. You know, Manu, early part of this century, I was involved in three initiatives. When there was the genome, genome discovered, one in Bahrain, the second in Dubai, which is the Dubai Tech. And then later on, went on to advise Singapore government on their biotech and uh, their biopolis uh, initiative in in Singapore. And I guess none of them uh, in this region could come to a world level the way you have explained. And I think that's a very strong key takeaway. Also from what I understand is if Mayo Clinic can develop and and build these platforms, the future of healthcare, obviously, in the war against the virus, man versus the virus, is definitely going to be far more comfortable. Before we close, uh, Manu, any parting comments from your side? No, thank you very much for uh, for inviting me, first of all, to talk about this. Uh, one of the things that I would basically say is just to add to the last statement that I made, one, from a regulatory, from a, a policy perspective, things that the government could potentially look at and folks like you who have been very actively involved in this should think about is We have a very fragmented system in which autonomous institutions are basically managed autonomously and each one of them basically manage their own intellectual property systems and and technology commercialization and things like that. If you have at least a command and control center that actually would run by somebody who actually understands this and the mandate to basically build technology commercialization operations and systematic what I call policy unit policies across DBT or uh, other institutions, and then have a a focus on commercializing technologies through independent technology commercialization offices internally, then it becomes a a more focused approach than let each institution fend for itself, then it becomes, okay, what's the priority of the institution at that? There is no national plan. I think that would be something. That That's all. Very that valid Thank point. You. Yeah, uh, I, Manu, I think Dr. Renu Sarup, uh, who I worked together in creating the ignition grant policy, should perhaps uh, also hear. And I would love to discuss this and refer this part of our talk as well for her to probably do a national level strategy on how how we can move forward. Manu, we have kind of run out of time, but indeed it has been a pleasure speaking with you on quote unquote with KK. Before we close, I would love to thank all our team members, our sponsors, as well as our production team, which has made it possible for us to run this episode. We would definitely come back in three weeks time with uh, another quote unquote with KK. So long and thanks once again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.